Thank you, Don. Good morning, everyone. So glad to uh, be back with you after a couple weeks of uh, rest. All right, let's pray together and we'll get into our text. Father in heaven, we need your spirit today to take this particular passage and apply it to our hearts. We need you to take a familiar subject like the cross and make it applicable and relevant and new. And we pray that today, Lord, I pray today, that through the preaching of your word, the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, there would be some today who decide, I need to give my life to Christ. And others who would say, I need to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus in new ways and maybe in new categories. And for those, Lord, today who are in the middle of a uncertain or suffering season, oh God, would you remind them that you've authored all the plans and today we can rest in you. If you're the author of um, the sacrifice of your own son, our things in our life are small in comparison so we can trust you. So we pray you'd help us, help me to get this passage right. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how we as human beings can swing from moments of brilliance and insight to moments of failure and defeat. It's, it's stunning to me, not just the highs and the lows, but the rapid way in which we move from great success to significant failure. I've heard it said before, I think you probably have as well, that we in our culture love to make our heroes And we also love to watch them fall. Mel Gibson went from making The Passion of the Christ to having things broadcast that he said. We learned this week that Bristol and Levi are back together again. And Tiger's struggling to hit a golf ball on the British Open. And LeBron, Dwayne, and Chris are trying to figure out how to minimize expectations in Miami. We we love to watch the rise and fall because we are a fickle people. We're a fickle lot. So it should not surprise us then that when we see the Apostle Peter nail it in one moment when he said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to then only have seven verses later to see him blow it and Jesus say, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. That's a pretty big high and a pretty big low in seven verses. Wouldn't you agree? And yet, what Peter's problem is, is not unlike our own. It's not just his humanity that works against him. It's also the fact that Jesus is an enigma. He says things that are confusing. He doesn't always make sense. And so what happens is that Peter's innate fickleness, combined with the false categories that he has made as to what the Messiah would be like and do, collide, and Jesus is bursting his categories. His categories are being disassembled, and he doesn't know what to do with this. Now, what Matthew is going to do in this passage today is help us to see the categories and priorities that are important to Jesus. And he wants us to see these so that we will see clearly the priorities and the non-optional things as it relates to Jesus' ministry, and then also as it relates to being a follower of his. Because after all, if you claim to be a Christian, a little Christ, then Jesus' priorities need to be your own. And so discovering what Jesus' priorities are, are essential. In fact, 
this passage, some would suggest, is as important or just barely second in importance in terms of Jesus' ethic and what is important to him, second only to the Sermon on the Mount. The problem here is that if you fail to grasp what Jesus is saying, fail to understand what his core priorities, his his core commitments are, then when life doesn't turn out like you expected or Christianity seems to be harder than what you thought, you might be tempted to either A, believe that Jesus doesn't really exist, or B, desert him, or C, fall into a pit of despair. So what I want to try and help you today to do is to build the right biblical categories, to to understand how Jesus' ministry has a particular focal point, and that focal point is the cross, and to show you why the cross is not optional and how that has enormous significance for us. So we're going to look at four insights regarding the cross and Christianity, and I hope to be able to help you build some categories. Some of these may be not so new, but maybe a different angle, and some of these may even be new thoughts for some of you. The first is this. It is that the cross is central to God's plan. Look at verse 21. This verse marks an important change in Jesus' ministry. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. This is the first of four instances in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus begins to speak very clearly as to what his plan is. No opaque language. This is a clear identification of what his ministry will be. And in doing so, he begins to redefine what the disciples' expectations should be for this Messiah. Notice what he tells them. The first is that he must go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of opposition. It was flying into the hornet's nest. It was not a place of safety. So danger is coming. He also tells them that he will suffer many things from the elders and priests and scribes. This is the most highly esteemed religious body in their world. And instead of the Messiah being welcomed and received by them, instead these folks will abuse him. In other words, the Messiah will suffer and will suffer at the hands of the religious crowd. Third, the most shocking statement of all is the fact that the Messiah will be killed. After they heard this, they must have not heard anything else. Because this does not fit with anyone's view of what would happen to the Messiah. The chosen one was to be victorious. He was to be a conqueror. He was to put his enemies underneath his feet. He was to restore the glory of Israel. He was not to be killed. And finally, we see that Jesus mentions that he'll be raised on the third day. And I I think this kind of goes in one ear and out the other. Jesus says that not that he will raise himself, but that he will be raised And that resurrection will come. Now this is Jesus' plan. But what you have to understand is this is not the normal messianic plan. In fact, the disciples had a very different view of what Jesus would do. And honestly, rightly so, because much of what the Bible talks about in terms of the role of the Messiah is seen in a glorious light. Now there's also texts that talk about the suffering of the Messiah, but there's also passages like Psalm 2, for instance. If you have your Bible, turn over there. I want to show you this. Psalm 2. This, this is the kind of, um, of passage that I think captures the heart of what would be a person's expectation in terms of the, the function and the trajectory of the Messiah. Psalm 2 and verse 2. Here's what it says. The kings of the earth set themselves 
And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's get rid of his rule. And then, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's the messianic victory that they had in mind. And who could blame them for not understanding what Jesus is saying? The the messianic office meant victory, it meant status, it meant glory. And therefore, as we'll see in a moment, Jesus' words hit a nerve. Suffer? Oppose? Die? (laughs) No, 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 no. That's not the role of the Messiah. The most important word in the whole verse, verse 21, is the word must. It says... From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go. Because it's not just that there is a plan, not just that suffering is anticipated, but it is that there is divine agency behind the suffering. It means that everything that is going to happen in terms of this different messianic function will be by divine design. So this must happen. One Commentator puts it this way, this verb, must, does not point us to the individual or heroic determination of Jesus, nor to the increasing opposition to his, the enemies, very real though that was, nor to a blind fate, nor to the arbitrary inscrutability of a distant divinity, nor to the psychological or religious needs of the Jews, but to a plan of God. In other words, the cross was not simply some divergence or appendix to the plan. Listen, the cross was the plan. The vilest symbol of human torture and punishment, the the most obvious example of shame and Roman tyranny, was on target, the plan. And what Jesus is telling his disciples here is that everything about his suffering is related to the divine necessity which will fulfill God's plan. Now this is important because it's one thing to predict bad things in the future. As if you were to say, look, bad things are going to happen. But it's entirely a different thing to say, bad things are going to happen on purpose. It's one thing to say, we're going to do this and it's going to be hard. It's another thing to say, we're doing this because it's hard. Now this will become even more important And more obvious in Matthew's Gospel, but for now, the simple but profound point that you need to understand is this, is that the cross, with all of its suffering and all of its shame, is central to the plan of God. The path of glory and honor for this Messiah leads straight to the vilest symbol of human cruelty and punishment, and that is exactly as God intended it. So too it is for the one who claims to be a follower of this Christ. Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy or worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. 
conclusion then is that we ought not be surprised at difficulties, hardships, because they are part of God's plan from the very beginning. As I said a couple weeks ago, hard is not bad, beloved. Hard is hard. But hard is not bad when hard is part of the plan. So while we were camping these last two weeks, one of our favorite things to do is to take some family bike rides. And we decided to do one last one on our final evening. It was a warm, kind of muggy night, and there were some trails that we had wanted to go down, and we hadn't done them yet. And so we set out at about 8.30 or so. And just to give you a little background, I have a... There's a fine line between famous and infamous, isn't there? And I have an infamous uh, reputation with my wife about unplanned bike rides. And it all began when we were first married on our honeymoon, and we were biking around an island, and I was sure that it was about three or four miles around the island. And about three or four hours later, I was fairly certain that I was not certain about the distance around the island. And since that time, I've never lived um, down this reputation of planning much longer bike rides than anyone can handle. That's the background. So 8.30 at night, we begin to take this this trail to see these great um, scenes in this uh, kind of natural area. And uh, pretty soon it gets dark. And my wife said to me, shouldn't we start heading back? I said, no, 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 this trail goes around and it'll bring us right by the campsite. And she said, are you sure? And I said, yes. And she smiled and said, I'm sure you're sure. And... uh, (laughs) So as we started going, it was getting darker and darker, and we're starting to get further and further into the woods. And these trails apparently weren't really designed for bikes because there were roots, and there's actually, uh, I think there was 54 stairs that we had to carry our bikes down and <laughs> things of that sort. And, and, and as my wife's bike broke down and as her kids are standing around, she said to me, Mark, I just have one question of this really enjoyable journey together. And she said, um, uh, do you know where we are? <laughs> And I said, yes, I do know where we are. I said, I've got the map in my head. Try and say it as convincingly as possible to, to convince her. She said, are you sure? And I said, yes. She said, because this is a lot of fun, but if you don't know where we are, then it's not much fun anymore. And I said to her, honey, I promise you, I know exactly where we are. Now, truth be told, I knew where we were. I didn't know how long it would take us to get back, but I knew exactly where we were. And here's the thing. She said, okay, that's fine. Let's keep going. Just as long as you promise me that you know that we're not lost. And I said, honey, I promise you we're not lost. And the rest of the trip, although hard, was enjoyable for her because she could trust, albeit her ignorant husband, that indeed we did know where we were. As long as you know that there's a point in the plan, it's much easier to deal with hard things, is it not? And so too with God's plan for your life. You never need to doubt if God is lost in his plan. Because there would be some who would look at the cross and go, what a mistake, and yet he was spot on target. There are things in life that don't make sense to you, but are a very important part of the divine plan. The cross is central to God's plan. Here's the second thing. Other options other than the cross are evil. Oh, how quickly Peter falls here. He rightly declares that Jesus was the Christ. But then, what does Peter do? He has too many preconceived ideas about how things are going to turn out. 
Jesus' statement about suffering and death are unthinkable to Peter. It's impossible to him that the Messiah would suffer such a fate. And so therefore, Peter apparently walks in front of Jesus or next to him and pulls him aside, pulls him close to him, and he says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now this was not just a suggestion. Hey, Lord, I got a little thing for the suggestion box. This this wasn't just a clarification. Hey, could you clarify? This is Peter in Jesus' face saying... Far be it from you. This is never going to happen. The word rebuke is the same word that Jesus used to tell the waves and the wind, be still, in Matthew 8. It's the same word that Jesus used to rebuke, or Matthew uses to describe Jesus' rebuke of a demon in 1718. So Peter is in Jesus' face, and Jesus pushes back hard. Four things he says to Peter. First, get behind me. So apparently Peter's up front, either next to him, in front of him, and Jesus reminds Peter where he should be, not by walking alongside him or ahead of him, but by following him. And then he says something that is stunning. Get behind me, what's the next word? Satan. Can we just acknowledge that this is not a good moment in Peter's life? Okay? Can you imagine, just allow me a little artistic license here. Imagine Peter comes home after this day and his wife says, Hey, honey, how was your day today? Eh, not so good. Not so good. Not good at all. Well, well, Jesus and I had this thing. and Well, what happened? Eh, I just, you know, he, he, he called me Satan. I mean, but it's, you know, we'll get over it. We'll work through it. You know, he called you Satan? Yeah, this is not a good day for, for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Why does he call him Satan? Well, the name Satan means adversary. Means enemy. And Jesus isn't abusing him here, but he's telling him that his ideas are adversarial. His ideas represent the counsel of the enemy. So, ironically and tragically, Peter has just spoken on God's behalf. He says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then the next moment, Peter is saying things that really reflect demonic concepts and so jesus says get behind me satan then he says you're a hindrance to me the word hindrance means stumbling block in the greek it's scandalon it's it's a roadblock it implies a dangerous trap he says to peter you and your ideas are a trap so get behind me so now the rock peter has gone to a roadblock in seven verses And then we see what the problem is. And everyone in this room should identify with this next statement. He says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here, friends, is the ultimate problem. Peter did what human beings are blessed to do, and that is to consider a problem and then consider multiple options. And he considered what Jesus said and then said, no, 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 not this way. There's got to be this way or this way or that way or this way. And what happened is that Peter's pride and self-assurance his confidence that he was right, and setting his mind on what he thought the Messiah should be and do, made him an adversary of Jesus, and get this, an unknowing and an unknowing accomplice of the devil. So, this short exchange between Jesus and Peter is alarming because Peter's error is so common, and yet it's so serious. He's guilty of assessing the situation. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then drawing conclusions as to what should be done. 
And even though God has a particular plan, the challenge here is that Peter's plan and his preconceived ideas collide with God's plan, and he believes that there has to be another way. And there are some times in our life when God's plans and our plans are so absolutely antithetical, it's not just that our, our, our ideas are bad, it's that they're actually opposing God. And the problem is our ideas. Which is why Martin Luther said that the pure in heart, those who see God, are those who take their ideas out of their minds and replace them with the Word of God. That's why you have to know this Word. Because without this, you will not think right thoughts. You will think wrong thoughts. And in some cases, even thoughts that are adversarial to the advancement of the kingdom. So Jesus says, this is the way. This is the only way. And here's another example of how countercultural Christianity is. That there are things that God defines as, this is the way and there are no other options. This is not the first among many options. This is the only option. And any other option that is offered is rebellious, evil, and satanic. Our world wants to believe that there are many ways that a person can be right with God. It doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or if you're a Buddhist, if you're Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon, or a Christian. We all just coexist, as you saw in that bumper sticker. We just all worship the same God. The challenge with that is the fact that Jesus unequivocally said the exact opposite. He said, no man comes to the Father except by me. It's the exclusivity of Christ's claim that make Christianity so radically different and in many cases much more offensive than other religions. And yet that doesn't change the fact that it's true. Our flesh would have us believe that there are many ways in which we can obey God, our ideas that can be blessed by God, and yet there's only one plan. You might try and convince yourself that you can make it in life without understanding God's book, His Bible, His Word to us. But the reality is, this is the plan. And those who understand this plan follow in obedience. And those who do things that are out of step with the Scripture are adversaries to God. So you don't look at the Bible as this is a suggestion book of how you should live. This is the rule of life. And those who disobey it are adversaries and advancing the cause of the devil. You see, so when you read the Scriptures, it's not just so you can have a better feeling about yourself. It is so you can know what it is that God wants you to do and to be, so you can then order your life in light of God's Word. Satan, you see, doesn't care if you believe some great heresy or if you just try and find an additional path of obedience outside of what God tells us. As long as you're not on the path that leads to life. His weapon of mass destruction is often mass distraction. The way he tries to destroy is not always by undercutting the truth of God's word, but by rather adding all sorts of things that seem to be on par with it. And cutting through all of this pluralism is the stark reality that other options besides the cross are not just bad, they are evil. Third, we see in the text here that a cross-bearing calling is central to being a follower of Jesus. 
So after Jesus has now defined what his ministry would entail and how wrong Peter's view is, he now turns to the rest of the disciples and begins to define for them the connection between not only his suffering, but their suffering, between his cross and their cross, and then links all of that together with this call for them to follow him. This is one of the most important passages about what it means to follow Jesus. And what you will notice here and in the section to come is that the one thing that Jesus is targeting is you. He's targeting the self. And you're going to see how self is the arch enemy of true discipleship. First, notice that Jesus says that a disciple must deny himself. Verse 24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So here is the problem. The major problem is self. And the overarching tone of discipleship is self-denial. So this is lesson 101 for children, for adults, for senior citizens, as to what it means in order that you might really know what it is to follow Jesus. It is that at the end of the day, the real hindrance in your life to following Christ and the real danger of what it means to follow Christ is inside of you. It is the self. So my greatest problem in life is me. And understanding that, is a key to understanding what discipleship is all about. A disciple must realize that self-preservation and self-exaltation are directly opposite of Jesus' way. Instead, Christ says that to deny oneself is to set aside your own interests and then to make loyalty to Jesus preeminent above everything, including your own life. Denying yourself means that you make a willing and definitive choice. I no longer rule my life. Jesus does. So here's the question all of us have to answer this morning. Who is running the show of your life? Who's running it? Is it you or is it Christ? The second thing he says is a disciple must take up his cross. This was incredibly shocking. Because here was the imagery of in Roman culture of when a person was condemned to die, they would carry the horizontal beam and they would walk through the city being mocked and ridiculed it was a walk of shame and then that vertical beam was then taken and then attached or the horizontal beam was then taken and then attached to the vertical beam that was in place at the point of execution so this was intended to not only be a cruel death but also one that was public and ridiculing you might think of it similar to what you'd see on the news what law enforcement people often call the perp walk where the person is brought from the jail to the transport and they sometimes come out in a bulletproof vest or then the cameras roll and they oftentimes kind of hide their face or things of that sort. You could also think of this in our modern day culture of being put on some kind of offenders list, a posting on the internet for everyone to see, everyone wants to access it, what you've done. Discipleship means a living death and a willing choice to embrace the shame that comes from following in the same steps that Jesus walked. So let a man deny himself, take up his cross, and then he says, follow me. The command is in the present tense, means there's continual action. So it, in the Jesus' time, a student would follow a rabbi, he would attach himself to him, join his school, walk around with him as his subject and as his student, and to take up one's cross means that you publicly acknowledge and embrace 
this self-denial, this self-abasement, all of the shame and ridicule that might come from naming the name of Christ. To bear your cross is not just to bear some inconvenience or difficulty. So I'm, I'm thrilled if you walk from the back end of the parking lot and were happy and sang as you came, but I've got news for you. As challenging as that was, please do not associate that with bearing your cross. Don't, don't over-spiritualize your walk and tell your kids, we're going to bear our cross today, kids. Let's bear our cross today as we walk through this. This is, this is an inconvenience. It is not the bearing of your cross. To bear your cross means that you publicly identify, I belong to Jesus and whatever comes my way because of that identification, I will embrace it. I will deny myself. I will exalt Him. He runs my life. I don't. I will live in such a way that the self is put down and Christ is exalted. And this shame and public identification with Christ is the beginning steps of what it means to bear one's cross. That, I think, begins when one is baptized and publicly acknowledges that indeed they have followed the Master and publicly say, I belong to Jesus. As He was buried, I was buried. And as He is raised, I am raised. And what Jesus is showing his disciples here is that a willingness to walk this way means that you choose self-denial, you publicly identify with him, and that there are no self-exalting, incognito, easy street disciples. Jesus is suggesting that he will suffer, but he also says that anyone who follows him will also suffer. Now Peter picks this up in 1 Peter 4. Listen to this. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. So what he's saying is, is that the cross comes before the crown and suffering comes before glory. That's the Jesus way. Suffering before glory, cross before crown. That's Jesus' way. And those who would follow him, that's the category of how they must see life. Now finally, there are eternal consequences to how you and what you decide related to this cross. After telling us what discipleship is all about, Jesus then talks about coming judgment. And he gives us um, three fours as backup or logic, if you will, as to what's really going on. First, he says that self-preservation leads to self-destruction and that self-denial leads to self-fulfillment. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is he saying here? He's saying that advancing yourself, trying to save face, Making a name for yourself and making it big may be a part of our cultural brass rings, but that's not the Jesus way. At the heart of the problem with all of them is self. And if you try and save your life, you'll lose it. But if you give your life, you'll find it. In other words, if you try and make much of yourself, you'll end up hating the very existence that you have when you stand before Christ, but if instead you say, I'm the problem and I need Christ to live in through me or I have no hope, Jesus says, ah, then you find yourself. Francis Chan is the author of a book called Crazy Love and he recently resigned his church 
a church he had planted and pastored for over 16 years. A friend of mine heard him speak at the Southern Baptist Convention a month ago and did some research on what he said. And here's an article. It says that Chan preached his last sermon at Cornerstone, which he founded on the last Sunday of May. The well-known pastor announced to his congregation in April he would be leaving. For years, he was feeling restless and found himself getting too comfortable as his church grew to thousands and as he gained popularity. He said, somehow I got away from that and I became a professional pastor. He was caught up, he says, with his accomplishments and praying for his ministry, and he wasn't pursuing Jesus like he used to. Here's what he said. He said, the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all of your mind. But in our day and age, it's hard to do anything with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind, especially in an age of text messaging, email, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm going, Lord, I want to know you, but I've caught myself where knowing you hasn't been enough. I've been wanting ministry. I've, I've wanted to accomplish things. I've been in that mode way too long, and God, I just miss you. If you gain, if you try and hold your life, you'll lose it, but if you let it go, you'll gain it. Secondly, Jesus asked, what's the point if you gain the whole world but lose your life? He says the very thing in verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his life? He's warning here, he's warning about being successful. You see, this isn't a warning about unsuccessful, he's warning about what happens if a man gains the whole world but loses his life. Jesus' warning is not for those who hit the bottom, but for those who hit the top. For men and women who in their busyness and in their activity, their drive to, to try and gain everything, but at the end of the day, they gain nothing because it's all about them. Listen to this indictment from Frederick Bruner, a commentator. At the last judgment, some of us will be dumbfounded to discover that what we thought was the innocent seeking of good and beautiful things for ourselves and our children was actually a whoring after alien gods and the use of religion to advance our status. Third, Jesus reminds us that he will return in glory and power and judgment. Look at what he says For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and He will repay each person according to what He has done. Now this is certainly uh, indicating future judgment, but it's more than just judgment. This is actually a statement of future hope. And Jesus begins to turn here towards a very hopeful theme. His message is that I'm going to come in my glory and I'm going to repay everything that's done. In other words, there's nothing that you've ever let go of that was a waste. There's nothing you've ever suffered for the name of Jesus or anything that you decided not to pursue in order to pursue Him that was ever a waste of energy or resources. So for all the things that you look at and you say, if I wasn't following Christ, I could do this and this and this and this, one day you will see that it will be worth it all when you, what, see Jesus. It will be worth it all. And he says he will repay everything you've ever suffered, every shame you've ever endured, every time you've ever taken up that cross and said, I'm a follower of Jesus, I will not strike back. I'm a follower of Jesus, I will say the right thing. I will be godly, even though others are not. And every time you have done that, the Lord Jesus Christ knows it, and you will be repaid. There is no suffering done in the name of Christ that is pointless. None. 
And then finally, Jesus makes a very interesting comment that some of the disciples will not taste death till they see the Son of Man. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now there's a lot of things, a lot of ways you could take this, but I think the best way to understand this is that He's referring to Peter, James, and John, who next week, as we'll see, see Jesus in the transfiguration. And they see the glory of Jesus and and, and what it means for him to come in the kingdom. He he sees the the beauty of this glorified son. They they see Moses and Elijah. In fact, Peter loves this environment so much that he says, let's set up a KOA right here. And he says, let's make tents and booths. Let's hang out and roast marshmallows. And No, he didn't say that. But he says, let's hang out. Let's enjoy this moment together. Let's stay here. Why does he say that? Because he sees the glory of who Jesus is. And there's something incredibly attractive about it. And I think the reason that Jesus ends this way is because there is a powerful motivator when you see him as he is. And here's what my prayer is, is that in the midst of all the things that God has asked you to do, in the midst of all the things that you might suffer, in the midst of all the things that you have to bear up your cross and follow him, my hope and prayer is that God by his spirit would help you to see who Jesus is. Because if you can see who he is, then anything you lose, anything you have to give up, anything you have to suffer, anything you have to bear up under is worth it because the glory of what you see in him. And it's the Spirit of the living God who helps you to see Him for who He is. And when you see Him, you say, there is nothing that I've lost that is worthy to be compared to the glory that I see in Him. 1 John 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as He is pure. When you see Christ for who He is, it makes following Him the most logical thing in the world to do. So Jesus bore His cross, and those who follow Him bear theirs. Listen, there's no other way. This is the only way. The cross is not optional because it's central to Jesus' ministry. And it's also central to the life of those who call themselves Christians. So biblical Christianity then involves the cross before the crown and suffering before glory. The world looks at this and laughs. And we look at it and rejoice. Because within the heart of a person who is a follower of Jesus, there is this single defining passion, and that is, I want to be like Him. Whatever the cost, whatever the price, however that works out, I just want to be like Jesus. And so, risen Christ, would you burn that passion in the hearts of those today who claim to be your disciples? Would you give some today spiritual eyesight to see you for who you are as Lord and Savior? Would you uphold those who, in the midst of their suffering, are hurting and have suffered loss for your name and remind them that nothing has been lost that you aren't aware of And there is always a point when you have the plan.
Oh God, guard us from mass distraction. And help us to be the kind of men and women whose single passion in life is Jesus. I want to be like you. And so, O risen Christ, take this cross and let it not be an ornament that we wear or a symbol that we see, but let it be the passion of the way in which we live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if you need someone to pray with you, have some folks up here afterwards, love to be able to minister to you in that way, okay? Please come. We'd love to pray for you. God bless you. I love you. Have a great day.